Welcome and thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I'm Marvin Telemontis, the pastor of River Rock Fellowship. Hope this inspires you and builds up your faith and helps you to see that God is moving in your life. Enjoy the message. Well, hey, everybody, welcome again to our new sermon series simply called The Ten Commandments. I've noted, and I agree with an author named Ron Mel, that the Ten Commandments is really, well, a love letter from the Lord. You know, a love letter is just an incredible way to see the heart and the love that a person has for another. These are ten words. You know, in Exodus, they weren't referred to as commandments. That came later. They were simply referred to as the ten words from the Lord. And these ten words, they really are all-encompassing, virtually touching every area of our lives. The truth is the ten words, when they're applied, when they're obeyed, that they provide blessing and strength and a hope and a future. They provide unity, law, and order. They provide significance and purpose fulfillment, and yes, peace. Not only for us, but future generations. Of course, for some folks, the idea of the Ten Commandments, it, it kind of it spooks them. They just view that the Ten Commandments is like God saying, you do something wrong and I'm going to squish you. But Rav, Ravi Zacharias I really like how he spoke about this. He says, when we think of the commands, we always think of restriction. We always think of hindrance. We always think of the elimination of freedom. Someone once said, he goes on to say, whenever you remove a fence, always pause long enough to ask why the fence was put there in the first place. (laughs) If the Ten Commandments were given to mankind from God, then maybe we need to ask, why? And and what purpose and, and what meaning is to be understood about giving of the Ten Commandments? We know the Ten Commandments, that they focus on this incredible interaction between how human and man or woman is to be in relationship and how to treat god the father we also know that the ten commandments speak about how you and i are to be in relationship with one another and all those around us man to man man to woman and that we are not to victimize our relationship with god and our relationship with other people which brings us yet to another question what's wrong with victimizing other humans what's wrong with it is this it's that human beings have value we are entities of real worth and how can people be entities of real worth and possess a sacred value unless humans are created by god And not just the idea of some random product of time, of matter, and chance. So 
the moment we begin to speak about ethics and about parameters and boundaries, um, the more we are assuming that humans have worth. And the only way to assume that is to assume and to agree with the Judeo-Christian value that God created people. That's why we have value. You and I are created in the image of God. Which means the Ten Commandments are still relevant today. It directs us how to love God. It directs us how to love other people. Because the Ten Words, those Ten Commandments, they guide us into understanding the value that God places on being in relationship with Him and being in relationship with other people. Well, to think that the Ten Commandments are irrelevant, archaic, insignificant, you know, especially for our modern times, is to miss the whole message of what the Ten Commandments are all about. It's to miss the very heart of God. The God who's a loving Father from heaven. How can any modern day scholar dare to say and look at the top ten, the big ten, I mean the ten commandments and say that, you know, the murdering of innocent blood, that's just really irrelevant. Or that to steal or to disrespect or destroy another, other people's property, well, you know, that's just archaic. Or that thou shall not commit adultery is just so oppressive and so demanding. I would suggest, why don't you ask the people who have been victimized by those things? And ask them if it's irrelevant, if it's archaic, if it means nothing. My suspicion is this. It's that most people don't have a problem with the last six commandments of the ten. Because that's about how we treat one another. What they really have a problem with, what appears to me, is the first four, which is how we are to be in relationship with God. Some people, they just frown on the idea of submitting to God as being the Almighty. I mean, that was the problem with Adam and Eve. There they were in the garden, and they wanted the apple for one reason, so they could become just like God, so they could be in control, so that they could run their life outside of submitting and being in relationship with God. And yet He's the one who literally created them and gave them all the real worth and the real value, the sacred value of life. He made them in the image of God. Have you ever heard someone say that the law of gravity is irrelevant? That is non-essential to us today because the law of gravity, it, you know, it just has not evolved. And it is so old. It's not with the times. <laughs> I mean, that's That's ridiculous. Well, just like the law of gravity, there is 
God's law, the Ten Commandments. And they are just as relevant and just as essential and just as needed in our life today as gravity is. There's no doubt that we are living in unprecedented times. And let me make it clear that the rioting, the violence, the arson, the looting, and the like, it is not protest. It is lawlessness. And this lawlessness is not without a design. It is not without a purpose. This type of lawlessness is designed to overthrow a government and with a purpose to establish a new government. This kind of design and this kind of purpose is called rebellion and treason. Between the pandemic, the amount of political tension and the corruption, and the radical groups rioting in the streets and the digital airways that are just full of saying, you know, hey, dark is, white, is light and light is dark and sweet is bitter and bitter is sweet. And well, let's look what the Scripture says. Isaiah 5.20 What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and that good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark and bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. Did you catch the part? What sorrow. In 1 Samuel it says, Chapter 15, verse 23. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. Folks, what's happening in our nation is not just serious at a practical level. The idea of ending law and order, the end of civility on the streets, the end of security and safety for the citizens of our nation. But this has, has very serious repercussions at a spiritual level. God will not stand for rebellion, not only in our nation, but in me and in you. God will not stand for stubbornness that is like worshiping other idols. And God will not stand for those who declare evil is good and that good is evil. That last part is incredibly serious. It's bad enough to say that evil is good, but to say that good, that the things of God are evil, you don't want to go there. This is why in the midst of all of this rebellion, there is a remnant. There's a people of God who are humbling themselves. They're confessing their sin. They're seeking God with all of their hearts. And they're praying for their church. And they're praying for our nation. They're praying for this world. The body of Christ is praying 
River Rock is praying. I pray to God that you are praying. This is incredible spiritual warfare when we pray. We put on the armor of God and God is moving. There are miracles. God is raising up His church. We should be excited about what God is doing in His people, in His church. I know revival's coming. I know the great awakening is coming. Oh, how we pray and oh, how we intercede for those folks who are misguided and they're lost in all of this lawlessness and this rebellion. God, we pray for them. God died for everyone. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. Folks, there's a great hope. There's good news. God is not dead. None of this has taken God by surprise. God is alive and God is always to be trusted. God will never fail you. I don't care what the circumstances are in right now. I don't care what the pressure is. I don't care how overwhelming it is. God is there. Reach out for His hand. He'll pull you out of the pit. God is raising us up. You know, I said for the last couple of weeks, and I want to remind us of this. I think we as a nation, and maybe even as the body of Christ, that we didn't mean to, but we kind of lost our way. And we kind of lost what really matters. I shared how as a baseball player, if you lose your way, if I was the baseball player, and I, I was swinging and swinging and striking out and striking out, that eventually a good coach would pull me aside and say, tomorrow, before practice, half hour, you get here, and I'm going to work with you. Fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals. He's going to teach me everything as though if I'd never played the game of baseball ever. And we're going to find that missing fundamental that I need to be able to hit the ball. That's what this sermon series is all about. Church, we need to go back to the fundamentals. That the ten words of God are that which we need. That the coach, that our Father God, can help us find what is missing in our game, in this reality of our faith, so that we would be able to be successful for the kingdom of God in our relationship with God in our relationship with others. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16, I know some folks think, gosh, you know, it's so old and archaic and, and it's like sometimes we just miss the beauty of what God wants us to catch. So 2 Timothy 3.16, I mean, there it is in the New Testament. They just make it so clear. All Scripture, including Exodus chapter 20, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. What is wrong with my swing? It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. 
Well, we're going to get into Exodus chapter 20. We're going to start verse 4 through 6. But before we do, let's pray. Father God, I just pray for your church. I pray for each and every person who's watching this today. I pray, Father, that we would consecrate our hearts, that we would be in a place where we could have ears to hear what God is saying, eyes to see what God would want us to see in our own lives and in others. Father, a nose to smell the rose of Sharon, to know the presence of God is in this place, that we would have tongues that would exalt and lift up, Father, one another and edify. And Father, we would have hands that would touch the way Jesus would touch. And Father, most of all, we would sense the Holy Spirit pouring Himself into us, filling us, body, soul, and spirit. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Go with me to Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to read from verses 4 through 6. You must not make for yourselves an idol of any kind, or an image of anything in the heavens, or on the earth, or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. Verse 6. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. Of course, we are tempted to say that, you know, we don't carve out little statues made out of wood or out of stone. That would be kind of silly. I mean, come on, is this really relevant to us today? Yet, if we stop and if we would be honest with ourselves. And the person in the mirror, we just might find out how real and how relevant the second commandment is to us right here, right now, and for today. See, verse 5 said, you must not bow down to them or worship them. Folks, to bow down has a huge worldwide understanding. When someone freely chooses to bow down, it communicates that one is in submission to the other one or to a thing. They bow down to it. Bowing down is to show weakness and that one is in agreement with the demands or the following of the orders of the other person. Yet, here we are thousands of years after the Ten Commandments. They were written in stone by the finger of God. And we're facing groups in America that are literally pressuring people to bow down, to take a knee, to bow down to an ideology, to a political group and to its political cause. Yet here the Lord is straightforward. And clear believers in god believers in jesus christ are not to bow down to anyone or to anything including a political group an ideology or to a king or to a queen except the king of kings and the lord of lords jesus christ our lord and savior it's 
Is it not intriguing to see how powerful and how relevant God's ten words, His ten commandments, that they're relevant for here and for today and what we are seeing and facing right now? Why has the idea of taking a knee or bowing down been such a struggle that why have some people of faith so wrestled with it? Even those who are really far away from God, they, they know that in their spirit, that as a follower of God, even someone who is backslidden, so we say, who professes Jesus Christ, they know instinctively that we're not to bow down except to Jesus. The Word says, Every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. You see, there's the enemy of our soul, and he is so cunning, he is so deceitful, that he uses extreme peer pressure over a political cause that has value, that has merit, that good-hearted people attempting to do right would unaware be bowing down and violating the second commandment by taking a knee, by submitting themselves publicly to something other than, than God alone. How many athletes... How many politicians, celebrities, average people have an idea that bowing down, that taking a knee in solidarity for anything or for anyone except Christ is an affront to God? I mean, when they understand that, they probably would say, I had no idea. They probably would say, God, I'm so sorry. They would probably say, Lord, forgive me. And the good news is, God will. God has. All we've got to do is say, Lord, you're the leader of my life. Be the forgiver of my life. Lord, I'm so sorry I was so wrong. And I trust you for any political cause that you want me to trust you for. And he will. You know, when, when we became a nation... We did away with bowing down to a king or bowing down to the queen of England. And when we became a nation separated from England, we decided we would not be bowing down to Congress or bowing down to the senators or bowing down to the judicial system or bowing down to a president. And that our leaders of our nation would not be bowing down to the citizens of our nation. Why? Because we are a Christian nation and we bow down to no one but Jesus Christ. Oh, how sneaky the enemy of our soul is, Satan. He's still out trying to steal, kill, and destroy. But no more. May His kingdom come, Jesus Christ. May His will be done, Jesus Christ. On earth, as it is in heaven. Exodus 20, verse 5, You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
who will not tolerate your affection for any other small g gods wow a jealous god really isn't that a sign of a little weakness there god i mean to be jealous i thought you were all everything god (laughs) that just doesn't sound right being jealous i think when we understand what this text is saying it actually sounds incredible you see the bible describes the word love in a lot of different ways you know there's the agape love unconditional love the way god loves all of us um there's nothing in my life that will stop him from loving me and there's nothing in my life that will cause him to love me he just loves me then there's eros that's the romantic love it's the love i have for my wife then there's phileo that's that brotherly love that friendship love and then there's a well there's this word called star j it's a greek word And it really means the parental, that affectionate love that a parent has for a child. Now, we know that God loves us unconditionally. But God is saying here in this text that not only does He love us unconditionally, but He's saying, I'm a jealous God who will not tolerate your affections for any other gods. He is saying, you belong to my family. And I love you. And I'm going to watch you like a mama watches her kids when they're playing. Like when somebody tries to invade the house and dad is there to protect and will sacrifice his own life to protect his family. Why? He's not jealous of them. He is jealous over them. It is his love that generates his care. For his family let's think of that child and parent dynamic that incredible bond with their child have you ever seen a situation maybe you've seen those videos where somebody where a mama had a situation where she literally picked the car up so she could get to her child literally lifted it off why stargate star jay Star, star J, Star J. What? It's incredible love. God knows. God knows as your heavenly Father that there is no one. There is no thing. There is no drug. There is no ideology. There is no religion. There is no achievement. There is no amount of money. No success. No other relationship. Nothing that is able to guide, guard, and govern you for your life, for you to see true fulfillment, for you to have true significance, for you to have true joy and a true future that's eternal, but through Him. There can only be one God in your life, in my life. There's only one who is worthy and who actually loves you in spite of you. In spite of my shortcomings and your shortcomings. Like a parent who's responsible for their child. Who is affectionate for their child. Who, because of Storge, will lay down their own life. 
as Jesus did. That's how much He loves you. Remember, God's not jealous of you. God is jealous over you. Now let's get back to this, this whole idol worship thing. He's also an author, Philip Riken, and he suggests that we make an idol whenever we try to turn God into something that we can manipulate. He says, this was the whole point of pagan idolatry. The Egyptians did not think that their gods actually lived in their idols, but they did think that idols gave them the kind of spiritual contact that would enable them to control their gods. God will not be manipulated. When He commands us not to make idols, He is saying that He will not be captured, that God will not be contained, assigned, or managed by anyone or anything for any purpose. God wants us to trust Him and to obey Him and not use Him. Remember, an idol is anything or anyone that becomes more important to us than God Himself. Another thing that we should see from this commandment is that rather than making an idol and having an idol, which is really nothing more than an inadequate representation of God, then you, then we, are to show others what God is really like by the way we live for God because we're made in the image of God. His name's Christopher Wright, and he wrote, The only legitimate image of God is the image of God created in His own likeness. Not even a statue will do, but only the human person. How oh, that's incredible. So again, back at Exodus chapter 5, excuse me, Exodus 20, verse 5 again. And I'm just going to read this whole thing. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You see, our obedience, it impacts those we love, not just us. During the time of Moses, in, in Moses' law, in the context of this, the culture, the society was, well, it comprised of, you know, communities, and they would have houses or tents. And it was in these homes, these houses, these tents, that there would be grandparents, there would be parents, there would be children and grandchildren and even great-grandchildren all under the exact same tent or roof. 
And when we see the scripture that say, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children, the entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation of those who reject it. There's an understanding that the grandparents and, and all of the different generations represented that literally that God is saying, listen, if everybody under that roof has the exact same core values, the same worldview, who not only live together under the same tent, but are participating in the worshiping of other idols together, like the patriarch in the family, but are doing it out of their own free will, God's going to deal with that. You can't miss the seriousness of this implication here. This passage says that the way you and I respond to this command will not simply affect us, it literally influences the generations after us. This, it, it doesn't negate your free will or my free will. Remember, no one has a child who's gone prodigal and who forsakes the way of righteousness and doesn't have guilt on their heart. But I have some hope for you. I want us to look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. And it says, The child will not be punished for the parent's sins. Catch that? And the parent will not be punished for the child's sin. Folks, we have free will. There comes a point of age of accountability when children, when they're out of the home, they are responsible for their own sins between them and the Lord. And the same with you, the same with me. And we can't own that guilt. We need to release that to the Father. And all this should make us intensely committed to teaching, to educating our children, both at home, at the church, in the community of the things of God. Great and lasting things are at stake for the future generations. Not only because of what we teach, but also because of who we are. It says in Numbers chapter 14, starting in verse 17, And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised saying now this is moses and moses is talking and he's literally negotiating with god right and he says this in verse 18 the lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love forgiving iniquity and transgression but he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation he's referring to the second commandment Verse 19, and here's what he does. He says, please, he's saying, God, please pardon the iniquity of, these, of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And see what God did. Because of God's great mercy, because God is all about love, He doesn't want to be known about wrath. He wants to be known for His love. Because these are tender words. This is how God responds to Moses. Verse 20, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according 
to your Moses word. Wow. Can we not see how much God loves? What's interesting here is how Moses didn't ignore how he cited the second commandment to the Lord. And when he pleaded how God was full of grace, full of mercy, and he pardoned. And if he will pardon those people, God will pardon you. He will pardon me. As a matter of fact, in the case of those who came out of Egypt, God judged the parents for committing idolatry, worshiping other idols, and their unbelief. And they had to wander in the desert for 40 years. But the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation, they all got to go into the promised land. He had given them a pardon. I mean, God just showed great patience with His chosen people. Rather than wipe them out for being unbelieving, for being all about worshiping idols, and grumbling and murmuring and complaining, God allowed them to live and actually to raise their children. God's promise will be kept through a future generation that would be faithful to the covenant of God. You know, as, as we'll see, God's mercy, it just goes so much farther than God's wrath. The first command in these ten words really could be said in two words. God first. And when you look at the second command, it could be put in two words. God only. God first, God only. So here's the challenge as we close. Is God first? And is God only in your life? The truth is, the more we surrender to the sovereignty of God, the greater freedom, the greater peace comes into our body, soul, and spirit. Oh, I pray for you today. I pray that God is first and that God is the only God in your life. So Lord, I pray blessing on your people. I pray, Lord, that if there is a conviction in the heart of somebody who's watching this message and they would say, you know what? I've been struggling having God first. I've been struggling making God the only God in my life. I've allowed other things to take over my heart. And I know it. I feel that tug that you would repent right here, right now. You would say, dear Heavenly Father, forgive me for making idols real in my life. God, Set me free. I confess my sin. I make you first and I make you only in my life. God be the leader of my life. God be the forgiver of my sins. In Jesus' holy name, amen.
Well, if you made that prayer, would you send us a, a text or an email and let us know. We would love to celebrate. I would love to personally call you and just chat with you about that email. So may God bless you, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Well, we hope this message helps you to take your next step closer to Jesus. Here's a great question to ask yourself right now. How will I be different because of what I just heard today? Well, for more info about us, go to rrf.church or find us on Facebook. I'm Pastor Marvin thanking you for taking the time to join us.